Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert, and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. We want to celebrate your love and appreciation for the show so during the month of June we're going to be collecting entries for a giveaway which we'll, we'll announce on July 1st. So there's a link over in the show notes where you can go and enter the contest. There's about 10 different ways to enter. Each one gets you different points, but you can go explore that on your own. More importantly, we'll be giving away a Weston Meat Grinder, an autographed copy of Eat Wild Game by Harvest in Nature, Justin Townsend, along with some Traeger sauces and seasonings. So go check out the show notes, click the link, and enter today. Hey everyone, welcome back to Harvest in Nature Wild Fishing Game Podcast. Uh, we got Justin here, uh, editing chief, harvesting nature. Got a couple other yahoos with us today. Go and introduce yourself. Hey, what's up? This is Dustin, co-host of Harvesting Nature podcast. This is Corey. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we normally have Colin on with us when we do these little crew chats, but he's uh, prepping for his move. If you guys listening last week, you know he's headed out to Oregon. So. Uh, I think he leaves sometimes this week to make the big drive cross country. So hopefully once he gets settled, we'll get a cool um, st- story recap on it because he's uh, doing some camping and some national parks and stuff along the way. So interesting to see what uh, adventures he gets into uh, today. So what I think we're going to talk about most is given the time that we've been living in, I know there's been a renewed interest for a lot of people for gardening and uh, Corey brought up the, the point that 
this time this year, more people are probably looking to gardening and creating sustainable crops for their own family consumption uh, in comparison to this time last year, just given some of the interesting circumstances we faced, uh, food shortage scares, uh, both meat and vegetables, just thoughts of farmers not being able to move produce and stuff to the markets and uh, just overall just trying to take more control of of your family's nutrition and your family's food cycle so uh thought we'd talk about that today and uh i ironically enough uh my wife and i well let's see the beginning of this year we sold uh, a hydroponic farm that we owned down here in key west that we operated uh, owned and operated for over two years it was called townsend family organic farms and uh, we grew a wide array of fruits and vegetables. Uh, also dabbled in some tropical fruits and stuff as well. So I'll touch a little bit on some of those experiences, some of those expertise. I know Corey uh, has been planning and working on his gardens consistently over the past few years. And, and Dustin's got a, a large amount of experience in, in varying aspects, oh, excuse me, varying aspects of, of horticulture and permaculture it's a good time uh, to be a self-reliant right now i think it's a great time i'm good with all the meat in my freezer but i don't have any vegetables to go with it so i need to get better at at canning all my vegetables man i, I feel like that needs to be a topic in the future too uh canning vegetables and even canning meat and fish uh i i think we could we could run some circles around those things for a little bit but today, I think a, a good amount of focus we can put on on the planning and growth and taking care of stuff. Uh, maybe people can take away some solid info from it. So, Corey, I know you have been working on, or do you have plants in the ground? I, I do. I mean, we just had snow here in May, the first week of May. So we uh, planted some stuff after that. But... Uh, yeah, I have a raised raised bed garden, and then um, we did some landscaping around the house and took out some stumps. And I thought, well, instead of planting grass or just flowers, I thought, why not put in a, another vegetable garden? So got a couple little gardens here and there around the property. Nice. So what uh what vegetables you you run with this year? Well, I I left some parsnips in the ground from last year. So those are those came back, and uh, I got a couple different types of beans, like a bronco bean and a golden wax bean. I got a couple different types of lettuces. What's a what's a bronco bean? It's like I think it's just like a a green bean type thing, but it's okay. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. Just curious. And, uh, I think you brought up a good point with the raised bed, because a lot of people don't understand the, the benefits of a raised bed. They just think, well, if, if it plants in the dirt, what's the big difference? But they don't understand that that it thaws quicker, it heats up quicker, it, it drains better than if you have plants in the ground. The one reason we did... Uh, well, I think it, it depends on the soil. Yeah, one yeah. reason we did it is because we could dictate what the soil was. We uh, went to a local place that that mixes their own stuff that's really good 
So we could put that in there, put a truckload of that in there. That's good stuff. Yeah, a lot of times with the raised beds and, and things you get more, like Dustin mentioned, ability to be more selective about uh, what minerals are in the soil, what type of soil you're using, drainability, all those things which are, are pretty crucial, um, especially if you live in a place where the soil itself is not good. good example would be Key West. In Key West, our soil is uh, not great at all. It's a mix of coral and, um, I believe, limestone. And it's, it's pretty crappy uh, for trying to grow a wider variety of plants. Not to mention we've got a lot of salt intrusion. So as the tide drops and raises, uh, as does the saltwater table uh, underneath us. So some plants and trees, fruit trees included, are super sensitive to saltwater intrusion. Uh, so if you have any type of flooding or king tides which we're experiencing now which are uh higher than normal tides they're getting into the roots of those plants and then you're seeing a lot of uh a lot of negative effects with it but definitely a big fan of raised garden beds uh now cord do you use or have you heard of the square foot method i have not no okay so square foot gardening um there is a book uh, conveniently titled Square Foot Gardening, uh, which is really a really good reference. You can also look up online uh, Square Foot Gardening. So then you get into versus planting in rows. You basically take a 12 by 12, your square foot, and you, um, depending on the type of plant, it takes into consideration how much space those plants actually need. So, you know, when you look on the back of the seed packet and it says X amount of spacing between plants. So a lot of people, traditional agriculture will tell you if you're planting in a row, you know, say you need three inches between your seeds, right? That means that from seed to seed, three inch gap, three, three inches between each one all the way in the row. So in the, the thought of square foot gardening is, all right, so if I've, I need a three foot three inch space around this seed to accommodate the plant that's going to be three inches on all four sides so then now i can almost grid out my plants because i know all right in a square foot i can fit x number of plants in there based on the spacing requirements the cool thing about the square foot gardening book and the online resources is it does the math for you uh, if you're not very strong at math like myself, you can go in and look and say, all right, I want to plant eggplant. Well, eggplant may only be two because those plants get a little larger. Or maybe I want to plant carrots. Well, carrots, I might be able to put 12 in a square foot. So it actually compacts uh, your garden with the spacing requirements of the plants and allows you to plant more. Uh, so... I don't know, maybe future gardening years, Corey, something to think about or, or for your fall or winter crops. But uh, when I was doing raised beds, uh, we had a lot of success with the uh, square foot gardening out in, in Southern California. Well, even with the average Joe, I don't think a lot of people read the back of the seed packets. I think they cut it open, they plant some seeds, and they hope for the best. But they don't even look at like what zone they're in and, and what time is the best time to plant them. Yeah, those are huge. Uh, the success of your garden starts with the planting of your seeds. So a lot of people will opt to go with seeds from a nursery, which is great, uh, especially if they're being grown in your local area. Uh, I'd be a little war war weary of 
what it's a common term, uh, the big box stores, sort of like Home Depot and Lowe's, uh, to just be thoughtful of those because those plants are shipped in and they're not often that local. So the key to that and the important part to understand is that once the seeds are planted, they're adapted to the environment in which they're going to grow. So here in Key West, for example, we've got uh, two nurseries, you know, essentially. We've got the one at Home Depot, which brings plants in nowhere within the Florida Keys. So I can already tell you they're not coming within a proximity of 150 miles. Right, but you show up there like, oh, these look great. I like to put them yep. in the garden. <laughs> Uh, but they, they don't exactly last. Nope. Uh, that's because they're not used to the environment here. And just the difference, there's a different zone. So the Florida Keys falls in a different zone in comparison to the, the Florida mainland, which is another zone, uh, growing zone, which can affect, it doesn't have a huge play, but it can affect a modern amount. Uh, and on the other side of that, we have a local nursery here that grows and seeds their own plants. So then if you're going there to buy your vegetable plants, your success is higher, uh, generally speaking, because you're going to have a plant that's already used to the, the air temperatures, the soil temperatures, you know, the moisture content in the air, all those factors, any, you know, diseases or bacteria that may be floating around, they may have already built resistance to that. So uh, that's an important consideration to think about uh, when planting a garden. So sorry, uh, we take a breath. So Corey, what do you got going? Um, lettuce, parsnips, beans, peppers, some tomato plants, cabbage, and trying garlic, but it's not it's not looking very good. And yeah, it's got it takes a little while. So, and that was kind of a last minute thing. What kind of tomatoes? Um, what kind of tomatoes you got? I think La Roma, and I can't remember the other, the other two. We only have four plants for the tomatoes, but uh, yeah, I know two of them. Nice. Two of them are La Roma, and I can't remember the other two. Nice. This is good. We uh we have a challenge with tomatoes down here. Some because of the heat, because uh, it it the so I think it's eggplants and tomatoes. If the, the night temperature doesn't drop below a certain threshold, the uh the pollen uh inside the flower will actually go sterile, so it won't produce uh it won't produce fruit even if it's fertilized, which is interesting but it's a challenge like our growing seasons are a little flip-flopped uh like right now we're at the very tail end of of being able to grow tomatoes again until until the springtime well even then it, it gives us the challenge of the iguanas and local wildlife because you can grow something but if the the local wildlife's eating it all you might not be able to harvest anything yep just having a good uh it would be what's called a pest management plan and having a good strategy to deal with those things. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there to use. Uh, they have, you know, pesticides, insecticides, and things like that. Both pellet organic. Gunicides. Pellet gunicides. <laughs> um, yeah, we run into the iguanas, and 
Dustin, when you lived up in Big Pine, you had the key deer up there. Key deer, guanas, frogs, it, I mean, you name it. Corey, do you run into any pest issues? Um, there are some bugs that I know that are getting to stuff. Like, I, I can't grow zucchini because the last few years there's something that just burrows into the into the stems and they just kills the plants after I only get a couple couple zucchinis off of them and then last year something mowed down all my lettuce I don't know if it was a groundhog or a deer but uh, or even aphids those things are aphids they'll take over everything uh, that's one of the big problems we have down here because they like the humid um, not as much I mean I guess you can swap out iguanas for groundhogs or ground squirrels or other varieties of crawling mammals. Um, trying to think about, I'm curious, I'd be curious to learn more about your squash problem, squash and zucchini. Um, so, talking about pest management and stuff, um, you know, we operated in an organic method, so we were very particular about what we used and we use kind of a, a step process to, once you identify that there's a pest, uh, you try to mitigate it with the least intrusive uh, way, which is usually like if it was uh, tomato hornworms, we were hand-picking them off. Uh, if it was cabbage worms, you know, we may hit them with the water hose or aphids even. We would go and wash plants down in the evening time uh, to try to combat uh, aphids and other things like that but a a good thought to think about is that uh, plants whether they're getting appropriate amount of nutrients or appropriate amount of, of minerals and depending on their environment and condition water all that if plants are stressed they're more susceptible to attracting pests and I mean mainly like insect pest not as much uh, animal pests and uh, I don't know what it is, something about uh, the pheromones or whatever that plants exude, but if you have a plant that's not doing well, uh, you're more than likely on a short fuse for whenever that plant will get uh, an insect visit. So um, some ways around that is just ensuring your soil pH, taking that into account, a uh, regular watering schedule, making sure you're not watering in the hottest part of the day uh, to both save water and not stress the plants out. And then also to just consider the environment. Is this plant right for this space? Like Dustin mentioned, uh, a lot of people glaze over the back of the seed packet. But one pretty vital piece of information on there is sun. Uh, so the amount of sun required. So if you're giving a plant too much sun or not enough sun, and it's either inhibiting its growth or stunting it or getting too much sun, then you're also stressing the plant out as well. Temperature ranges could be another stress point. So that would be the first step to think of like, hey, is this plant really healthy? Uh, and then from there, like as you escalate up and move through more intrusive methods, uh, looking at organic ways, you can look neem oil to help treat aphids. Uh, is a pretty common one. Uh, insecticidal soap is another very useful tool. Um, a lot of people will 
use different soaps. Uh, I know Dr. Bronner's dish soap. Uh, I've heard of people use things. So there's a difference between uh, a detergent and a soap. So things you wash dishes with are detergents. You don't want to use those. They have different chemicals and stuff in them that also will stress out your plant and it will backfire. Uh, so sticking to what the things are used for or intended for will help. Sorry, I keep getting on like a rant. That's good. I took a class uh, last, no, yeah, last year in the summer, uh, the University of Florida to get certified as a master gardener. And so a lot of this stuff that we that I learned and, and further implemented uh, into the farming practice, I learned a lot from there. So I'll highlight that and say every county in the United States has what's called an extension an agriculture extension office and those agriculture extension offices uh have an an agriculture extension agent which is uh they're usually partially funded by the county you live in and partially funded by whatever state university that deals with agriculture so a lot of the state um state specific like oklahoma state and pennsylvania it's um, penn state yeah, so they'll co they'll co-sponsor those agriculture agents and and they do a variety of functions not just specific to agriculture. They also will hold like plant clinics so you can if you have diseases and problems that you're unable to identify with your plants, you can bring them in. They'll help diagnose, you know, things. They'll also uh, a lot of them will come to your house and do visits and and help you out with looking at native plants versus non-native plants. Uh, another great function is they hold a lot of resources for growing vegetables in your local area. And uh, I think that's really key because it's, it's hard for, you know, someone like me to speak to Cory Zone or to speak to growing in different parts of the country where the growing seasons are different and the plants, you know, you run into different problems. So uh, always a great resource. I highly recommend those individuals and those offices. It's a good place to start if you don't know a lot of information about growing. So, Dustin, um, trying to think as far as looking at some uh, some gardening you've done in the past. I know we talked a little bit about composting. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on composting and, and all the various things unto there. I love composting. I don't think a lot of people understand that what they have can be used to, to help their gardens. So like with composting, people, they'll throw away eggshells, old Keurig cups, coffee, tea, whatever. But that can go back in. And that's some of the stuff that the nutrient loves. Like, like for plants, that's dessert. So what we do is we have a, we have a jar on our counter that we, uh, every time we make coffee, we'll take the old K-cups, we'll cut it open and dump the coffee into it. If we make tea, we'll dump the tea into it. Eggshells, any kind of organic matter. Anything that's not really acidic, we'll dump in there. And we have a, a composting bin downstairs that we'll bring down. We'll mix it around every now and then. But the soil in it just has so much nutrients in it. So when we got to change out the, the soil on a plant, we go to our compost bin and we swap it out. And the plants love it. I'm trying to think, do you mix any... So you have two components to compost. You have your... Your nitrogen and your carbon. Your nitrogen comes from your food scraps. Your carbon comes from 
like wood, fibrous, uh, other soil, leaves, what are you using as your brown material, also known as the carbon? Well, on top of all the stuff that we add from the kitchen, we also add a, we have a shredder. And, and when we have, like, personal documents come in, letters and that, we shred it. We add that. And funny enough, I also have my own composting worms. They they constantly try to escape down here because I don't have one of those tumblers. I have a, I have a big basin that I put them in versus a, um, a tumbler compost bin that you can spin. So, you know, i gotta, I got to add more worms every now and then. Uh, but worms are a big part of it, so that's, that's pretty important to bring up. But we also, like I said, add shredded paper. So on top, on top of the, the kitchen scraps, we have shredded paper. And as much as we add that, when they break it down, it just turns into rich soil. So compost is really key to repairing nutrient-depleted soil. Um and it's pretty easy for people to make it on their own. Um, I use like a, a 50-50 mix of the nitrogen material, so your food scraps, and then my wood fiber. Uh, I get our local police station has horses, and the bedding from the horses mixed with the manure and all the other things uh, we go and pick up that and mix in with our compost, which gives you an even kind of added bonus. Uh, one thing to think about if if you want to start uh, compost from scratch is you're going to need some of the microbes uh, to help expedite the process. So there's a lot of compost starters out there that will give you sort of a boost of those microbes along with some different uh nutrients and stuff that your your compost will need and it will later on help your plants out but basically those microbes help break down uh, the compost quicker and then you get into a lot of people you either end up with compost that's too wet or too dry so sort of understanding that uh, the compost shouldn't stink it shouldn't be like super juicy it shouldn't be super dry and crumbly like there's a nice like medium it should be like a nice where, dirt yep and uh, also getting oxygen to it, so you gotta turn the soil uh, pretty regularly. Uh, you know, when I first started composting, we would literally take a bucket load of, of food scraps and a bucket load of the horse bedding and mix together. And then after we had like a nice sizable pile, you need about a three foot, uh, what three foot by three foot by three foot is what size you need for it to effectively start composting. And once you're able to mix that up regularly, it's going to start to break down into a smaller pile. But to begin with, that's that's what you sort of need to get a good foundation. Yeah, and if you're going to use the bin, make sure you poke holes in it. You want it to aerate. You don't want a, a, yep. a tight Tupperware bin for one. Also, keep it away from anything that can catch fire. It gets hot, and it can combust. Yep, it's a, it's a rare occasion, but it definitely can. Uh, you also... You don't want it to get too hot because then you're killing microbes right, inside. Right. It's it's like yeah, uh, so the aeration is pretty key. Corey, have you used any compost or mixed any compost in with your uh, I, your vegetables? I do a lot. What uh, Dustin does, we take coffee grounds and eggshells and all of our uh, you know onion skins and leftover vegetables and throw into. I have a corner of our garden that's 
our compost and um, in the fall uh, I'm going to start putting leaves and uh, grass clippings in there. I need to do more of the the brown as you say um, and I you know throw some dirt on top mix it around uh, although I, I, I haven't got it to the three by three by three size yet it's just in the one corner of the the raised bed but but nice I'll uh you know when in the spring when I till the garden I'll till that and try to help spread it throughout the raised bed that's good I've had uh I've also had success so I use because I was at one time processing a lot of compost um the like city trash bins the like 90 gallon trash bins i would use those and i would use like a post hole uh router an electric one and that was what i was used to mix it up but um just trying to keep it contained and everything intact it's it's good that you're tilling it in uh and then it's it's a close proximity to where your garden is if you often have like a pile far away and it takes a chance for it to get mixed up with regular soil you kind of like lose the ability to incorporate it into your garden. So a lot of people will use the closed compost systems like Dustin mentioned where you have like a container or a bin or a vessel that you're keeping it in. Uh, there's a lot of them you can get on Amazon too, compost tumblers. You can make your own using like a 50-gallon plastic drum uh, with like a little, some hinges and a cutout door on it. Well, they're relatively on. affordable now too. I mean, you can get a... a decent sized tumbler for 150 on Amazon but those used to be like three hundred dollars you know they used to cost so much so you'd get a bin and do it yourself in your backyard but now there's there's just more competing companies that make them available for you to have that you could tumble them and then when you tumble them there's drain ports in the end you can do and you can dump out the good dirt to put in your plants yep yeah there's a lot of different systems out there even like the the worm composting systems too. Uh, you have to be careful where you're at geographically in the U.S. with worms, um, because if it's too hot, the the worms themselves will start to die. Like down here, it's hard for them to survive. If you have a place that's out in the sun, it just gets too hot. Some um, people keep worm farms in their kitchen. Yep, I've heard that. Don't know how comfortable I'd be. <laughs> Just eating some spaghetti at night, and you're like, "Oh, look at this guy. This noodle looks different." <laughs> like, yeah, uh, but those castings are pretty good for your plants. I typically do a lot of hydroponic farming. Uh, that's what I've gone to. Uh, that's what we operated down here, based on soil types, and that's what we we continue to have two of the units running. Uh, they're really great. Called Tower Garden. Uh, we still actually, my wife's a, a rep for the company, so. Uh, that helped us kind of get off the ground because we were able to get a uh, a good deal on them. But great quality systems. A lot of people try to replicate them, but recommend if you're going to get one just outright, buy one. And they hold about 20 plants, 20 to 28 plants, depending on which one you have. And you, you typically use about 80% less water than you would in traditional because you're not losing water. You're able to recirculate what the plants don't absorb. You control the pH, you control the nutrient content in the water, and uh, you end up growing plants faster. So so what um, kind of pH do you recommend? What, what's the pH that you recommend that would, uh, is it plant dependent or are you? It is plant dependent. Uh, so 
you're looking if you try to stay like the 6.5 6 to 6.5 to 7 range you're going to satisfy the needs of most plants um there's some outliers to that but they're very very few and i think most of what you told me you were growing are going to fit within that category what i try to do um and I'll, I'll explain this in, in hydroponic terms and then translate it over into raised garden beds since that's what we're, we're using as well. So with hydroponics, since I have one water source that's feeding 20 plants, I will arrange my plants so that they're all operating in relatively the same, they like the relatively same pH. So for instance, you may have like bell peppers uh, don't, this isn't a direct quote on what pH range they like, just an example. So bell pepper may like a pH of 5.5 all the way up to 7.5. But I also want to put those bell peppers in my um, tower with, say, collard greens. Collard greens may like 6 points all the way up to 8.5. So what I'm going to do is try to find the 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 middle ground between the two and find a good pH that works for both and that way uh, I can operate plants all in that same range and I know all right the pH in this tower constantly needs to be at seven and then to translate that over into uh, raised garden beds if you're looking at you know maybe having two garden beds say you have one group of plants that likes a particular ph and another group of plants that like maybe two garden beds or maybe put a separator in your garden bed and have different soil ph levels in the two does that answer your question yes and for the listeners that don't know how to check their soil for the ph how how would you go about doing that uh, they make pH readers uh, that you can put in the soil. Um, I think there's some other methods. I'm not as familiar with it. I know that another thing you can take, say you have a patch of land, uh, not using raised garden beds, but you're just curious what your your soil uh, itself looks like, you can contact your, your extension, your ag extension agent, and they'll help you do what's called a soil test. And you send that soil test out to the university's lab and they'll actually analyze it and tell you your soil type. It'll give you a bunch of information to include like pH and all the other stuff, uh, which comes in really handy if you're like, Hey man, I have this one acre out here that I want to plant. And you know, now all right so this is what i need to add in this is what i need to change and i think it's a really small fee but that gets kind of a more scientific method into looking at ph in hydroponic systems we use basically the same thing you use for your swimming pool right um, well with, with hydroponics but also some places that are very moist you know i don't say moisture dependent but they have they have test strips you can use for your ph but if it's very dry soil, it's not going to work the same. Yep, there's a there's a couple different methods. There's a you can look at there's different gauges that you can put into. Uh, not quite sure how reliable they are, but there's definitely a lot out there that will help you gauge both the moisture content of your soil 
as well as the pH levels. Um, so, so like and, uh, Lowe's and Walmart and th those type of places have those meters. Are would you uh, would you recommend those to the listeners, or do you think you need to so something that's a little more? Because I think at Walmart you can get them for like fifteen or twenty bucks. Is that and and like you say, they do moisture, yeah. pH, and uh, I can't remember the other one that a lot of them do. Well, well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I I can't speak for everywhere, but when I was in Colorado, those things helped me. They were great. So so for where I was, and Colorado's pretty dry, and and it's pretty high altitude too. But for my garden, it it worked. It was pretty effective, and it helped me out. So I, I think I think they are very helpful. I'm not going to say they're going to work 100% across all of North America, but they can be helpful. Yeah, I I think consistently I would recommend them as a as a starting point. It depends on how in depth you want to get into the actual into the actual science of it and and figuring out an exact pH. And it's something I always recommended to people is like if you can get a good average and your plants are doing well, um, you know, then then you don't really need to get a lot of people get lost on the, all right, I need to make sure my pH is 6.5 at all times. Like you, you're going to get yourself <laughs> in the weeds to say, but, um, just to, just to keep it, you can look at the, there's a, a way to look at the plants too and identify pH deficiency or pH, not deficiencies, but when the pH isn't right, you're going to start to see visible signs in the plant. Um, uh, a good example of that is with kale plants. So if you get a pH that's too high, the kale plants are going to start to have a, a lot of yellowing. And if it's prolonged, the yellowing will turn into white and it'll look like it, the plant itself almost has like white veins. It's a really odd occurrence, but um, that's just one example I have. So also, you know, looking at your plants, I tell everybody, like, treat your plants like you treat your pet or your child, like, check on them regularly, make sure they're doing okay. I don't think plants you need to check as much as your child, but, like, giving them a look over and understanding, like, what's going on in that little biome will help you identify problems to include, like, uh, a too low or too high pH. Well, also, what, let's say you just buy a new house, new property, or new land. You're like, all right, what am I getting into? It's a good it's a good test to kind of give you a baseline of where you're at. Yeah, I would use those meters to start with and if if you couldn't figure it out, I would reach out to the ag agents. There's also um you get uh they do like county-wide uh soil surveys. I have one for Monroe County, uh which is where I live, and at one point I was looking at purchasing property here and I was going to be growing on it, so I was really curious about the soil in that specific area. So they do in-depth surveys and do a great mapping uh, to tell you what types of soil 
are in your area. And I mean, you can look at it and be like, all right, in this hectare or this whatever, uh, this type of soil is prevalent. And it's going to give you the scientific breakdown of it of like, all right, the average pH is this, the average moisture content of this. It's either it, it drains well, it holds moisture, all these other things, just based on the soil type that they're doing sort of surveys on to find out. So that's a that's an important tool too, and you can access those. I think through county offices or even through the extension, maybe online as well. Some universities will have them. You're very knowledgeable on this subject. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was running a commercial farm, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I grew up. I grew up in the the agriculture industry too, so um, we, we paid attention to. You learn a lot of that. Um. It's it's good just to sort of know, and I th- I think people people get intimidated by it, and it's just like, you know, starting out at some point, like, there was a guy who didn't know anything about it, and he's like, all right, I'm going to try to plant this plant, and it's either going to be a success or a failure. So it's like the internet and the age we live in has enough resources out there that if you're willing to figure out what's going on with your plants, whether they're doing good or doing bad, like you can, you can learn to grow proficiently. It's just like I tell people with cooking, like it's a confidence thing. You just have to do it. The plants, I think people get nervous because it's like another living thing. And it, you know, what is, what are people going to think about me if I kill all these plants? Well, you're gonna think it's an investment too, right? You don't want to plant a bunch of stuff and have it get halfway along, and then it dies at the last minute, doesn't produce anything, and you put all this time and nurturing into this into this whole patch of land, and then nothing happens. You're like, oh man. I think I think that's a good point too. Uh, to start small, you know, uh, coming out of the gate and trying to plant half an acre, unless you really understand what's going on, or yeah. stick, you know, on stick that, to herbs like, in the window garden, you know. Yeah, I mean, start small, like raised garden bed, you know, a six by six or whatever, and then maybe next year you want two. Maybe next year, you you know, the following year you pull a stump and you're like, all right, where's our third garden? Um, My boys took over our second garden, raised garden bed. It's their uh, their uh, construction site with their Donka trucks. That's good, man. I I loved that when I was a kid. We had a big old, just a, a sand pile. It wasn't even an organized box. It was just a pile of sand that somebody had dumped in the yard. Do you have any fruit trees on your property, Corey? I do not. I'm, I want to put some fruit trees in. I had a friend that put several, just put them in on his property. And then we have friends that have uh, a bunch of blueberry bushes. So I, I want to start getting into that and i think with that i've gotten lost in the weeds because there's trees you want to match with trees so they they pollinate and they flower and they produce fruit and so i'm i haven't taken that first step you should just get one just go with it growing up we had we had apple trees we had plums and pear trees were pretty common uh, in Oklahoma, we had persimmons, but they're not like the the persimmons you see kind of in the Asian markets. They're it's got to be a, a closer cousin to the the plums, but they grew quasi wild in Oklahoma. Um, and then we had blackberries and other different varieties of berries that grew as well. 
yeah what what uh what varieties are you thinking about I, I haven't at all if you gave me a, a top three i was gonna uh, i haven't really dug into the actual varieties i was i wanted to do apple and a pear um because i you know reading some those are good to you know cross pollinate and they would they would uh produce fruit but i haven't got down to the specific type that i i want to do um so any recommendations Oh, I don't have too much experience up there. Um, man, I would go. Tree is a good hardy tree we had in New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Very arid, dry, put up with a lot of heat, low water. But the old uh, mulberries, or, or yeah, maybe called blackberries. But they, I mean, they're kind of messy because when they shed, they they go everywhere. But they grow in anything, and everyone loves them. I uh yeah, mulberries are pretty good. We had one of those trees too, but yeah, like you said, it they dropped, they dropped the mulberries everywhere. Yeah, Ooh, super Corey, messy. You, you should look at fig trees. Oh my god, those are great. Yeah. Yeah, figs are pretty easy to grow. Um, I don't know if you like figs, but I think they're pretty, pretty temperate, so they can take a, a good range. Um, man, thinking about apples and pears, though, I don't even know what we had growing up either. The specific variety, they were just there. I would just go to the... Tap some sap and make some syrup. Yeah, we we have maple (laughs) trees on the property, and friends friends do that more of as like a hobby or just, you know, tap one tree in the yard. Do they produce a lot? Get get a... Like, Like one tree, how much would it produce? Oh, what'd he say? He got, he got, I mean, it wasn't quite a gallon of syrup. I, it was less than a gallon of syrup, but um, once he boiled it all down, but that's, that's a process. And actually my boss at work, he, uh, he produces his own, own maple syrup commercially. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That'd be pretty interesting to have that. Even free syrup a year, even, you know? Yeah. I the syrup game to me is just completely foreign. Um I would love to know more about it. That's for sure. I see a lot of people and it's like you, you people get into it like they get into to beekeeping, which is another thing that fascinates me. And it's pretty prevalent up here maple syrup. We have a maple syrup tour in our area and you go around to the different farms and buy a bottle of their stuff and you know everybody has their little sugar shack all their pipes running into it and um you know it, it's the sap runs well when the days are warm but the nights get cold so that's when it produces a lot of sap so what's typically what would you say is the the like ideal time of year just a range uh, i th- a I, th- I think it's a uh, like March time frame, I believe, is when when people really start producing it here. I, I could be wrong. February, March, April time frame. So for the average person that doesn't know, I, I don't know. I, I, I know of the idea, and, and I really like it. It sounds really interesting to me. But let's say someone up there, they buy some land, they have some maple trees, is is this something that could be relatively done pretty easy? If 
Yeah, you video. just drill a hole in the tree and with the tap, put a bucket, you know, a covered bucket, and then you get the sap, and then you spend eight hours boiling that sap down into syrup. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. But the, like some of the bigger operations up here have like um, a reverse, was it reverse osmosis or something like that, where you don't have to have oh, yeah. that whole, you know, because it takes a lot of energy to boil all that sap so they do that so that it doesn't t require as much energy still eight hours for free syrup i'm down a thing that's very prevalent around here is dandelions i don't know if you got if you have dandelions down that way uh we do not as not as much uh we had them growing up a lot in oklahoma um i've grown them and sold them commercially D dandelion uh, the greens less for the flowers yeah that's interesting. Have you ever eaten the leaves? I have not, but this this spring we went out to the to the field and picked a bucket full of the flowers and uh, I made dandelion jam. Dude, that sounds no pretty good. Dandelion jam, huh? We we had so it, many dandelions in New Mexico, I've never even heard of that. It's it's super super simple, just a few ingredients. Three or yeah, three or four ingredients. You have the you take the the flour. You you don't want any of the greens in there because it can make it bitter. And then sugar, water, and uh, pectin to help set it up. And it tastes like mild honey. And I gave a few jars away to friends, and they were really really skeptical skeptical when they took it, but <laughs> they you know. I saw them again. They're like, "That was good." So, how much? How many flowers do you need? Like, what's the ratio of flowers you need to the amount you're going to receive at at the end of production? Just curious. I picked. A, I picked. I think we took. It might have been a gallon, a little gallon ice cream bucket is what we took out into the field, and uh, we had that overflowing. And then I didn't even use half of that, less than half of that, to uh, to make the the first part of it, uh, which yielded about hmm. eight half pint jars. Wow! And sounds like sounds like dandelion is like sorghum. It's like something that some people do locally, and it's amazing, but not everyone knows about it. Yeah. Um, that's the first I've heard of dandelion jam. I have to give credit to uh, the Hunt, Gather, Cook Facebook group, Hank Shaw's Facebook group. I saw someone oh, man. post in there about dandelions, and um, and I think that was right when the, uh, the stay-at-home orders started, or right around then. So we had a lot of free time on our hand. So I thought I'd give it a try. Dude, that group is that group is such a wealth of knowledge. Um that's one of my favorite Facebook groups I think I follow. Agreed. And every, everybody's pretty friendly in there too and willing to talk about it and I think it's cool cuz Hank himself is like will comment on almost every post. So, uh He's pretty open and accessible when it comes to questions and, and a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I think he's answered um, a few of my questions in there. That's cool.
We uh, I I think it's the first I've ever heard of dandelion jam. My my tribe, uh, the Choctaw, uh, have a traditional wine made from dandelion flower, and uh, I've never made it, but I I, I want to try the recipe. But it's supposed to be like pretty good stuff. So uh, we but- got to do it. That sounds amazing. Let's try it. <laughs> dandelion greens though uh are pretty good i know it's it's pretty popular in italian cooking um my uh stepfather who is uh, italian not like from italy but he's italian american his grandparents immigrated over and they actually his grandmother prepared it for me when when i was visiting uh they have a dish that has lamb meatballs and dandelion greens and it's uh i can't remember the exact name of it but it's phenomenal i'm curious i may have to make it with some some wild game now i just got some some pork the other day uh that i'm super excited about some wild pork uh from a friend and it's a a pretty cool story so I, i he's there's not a lot of uh, the South Florida hunters that live down here in the Florida Keys that travel back and forth, but he uh, he posted a message on Instagram saying he had uh, two he had one hog that he had shot just recently up on the mainland and had it quartered but didn't have it processed. And he's like, "All right, I'll give half the meat to if anybody wants to process it," and you know. It was Friday afternoon. I was like, I don't have too, too much going on this weekend. So I messaged him and was like, hey, man, I'll, I'll do it. So anyway, I showed up at his house and ended up, he had two hogs. So I processed uh, two hogs over the weekend and made, uh, packaged all up, vacuum sealed it, ground some meat, made some sausage. Uh was was a pretty successful weekend, and we, we split did an even 50-50 split on the meat. So now i got some ground pork that I didn't put into sausage that uh, I may have to try that recipe with. You may see that floating around on, on Harvest and Nature website here pretty soon. The old dandelion baconator? <laughs> Something like that. Um, I don't know if you guys saw last, uh, last week. Well, when you hear this, it will be two weeks back. Or no, it will be last week. Uh, last week we posted uh, posted a recipe that was brought up during our our conversation with the the fellows over from from Allen Company, where we talked about some blue cheese meatloaf. Went ahead and made that a couple like a week or so ago, but uh, fancied it up a little bit. Did some horseradish, mashed potatoes, and some port poached pears say that five <laughs> times fast port but port um, like the drink yep port like the drink you take it and you uh simmer the pears in it use some bosch pears uh bosque whatever however it's pronounced precisely and peel them soak them simmer in that for about 20 30 minutes till they turn purple on the outside and then uh you pull the pears out slice them up to use this sort of like a a pseudo chutney and then uh, reduce that sauce down a little bit more until you can see it sort of stick to the bottom of the pan a little bit when you move it around. And then I took the meatloaf, uh, which was, man, amazing. Uh, I was blown away. I actually ended up eating the rest of the meatloaf uh, without the sauce or without the mashed potatoes, and, man, it was so good. Uh, Blue cheese, though, a lot of people are turned off by it. 
uh, but the horseradish mashed potatoes with the blue cheese meatloaf and then the, the port pear reduction is what you call it, uh, technical terms, uh, over the top. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. They're smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. All right, so I want to take a quick minute to uh, talk about some important conservation um, and hunting and fishing related um, legislation that's going on right now. And it's called the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, if you follow the news, you follow the outdoor community, groups like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Meat Eater, uh, a lot of the major conservation groups are really bringing this to light. And it, it's probably one of the most important, uh, I would say, bills or pieces of legislation that's that's gonna that has come through in, in the past little while. And it's it's being sponsored by a lot of prominent uh, senators and representatives, um, you know, in a bipartisan manner. So I just want to take a moment and discuss it a little bit in detail and, and hopefully put a little call to action uh, for you to reach out to your senators and to your uh, representatives to show your support of this bill because it, it's huge. Um so the Great American Outdoors Act is basically uh, addressing maintenance backlogs on public land, and it's also guaranteeing full dedicated funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And um, I think the Land and Conservation Fund, you can look throughout its history, and it, it probably the money from that trickles down to almost every state and I it's been speculated almost every county in the United States to help uh, with access and conservation in different areas in public lands and all that stuff so if you're really passionate about keeping public places public and keeping wild things wild then this is this is something you want to take action on and, and just put in a phone call or an email uh, there's a lot of easy ways to do it and the Great American Outdoors Act would appropriate ninety million dollars annually um, to the Land and Water million. Conservation Fund. Yeah, sorry, nine hundred million uh, to the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and will also provide an additional one point nine billion annually uh, through fiscal year twenty twenty five to the Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service. U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Bureau of Land Management, and Bureau of Indian Education, uh, which will help them take care of backlog roads, trails, facilities, and aquatic structures. So all those things that you're using 
if you're out in the wilderness, if you're out accessing public land, if you're fishing on rivers, streams, lakes, um, we all kind of rely on these sites. And it's great. Like I said, they support projects all across the United States. And um, I think it's important to point out sort of as hunting numbers decline that we can expect to see a decline in license-based funding as well. So sportsmen and women uh, who cite, you know, a lack of public access as a a great impediment on their time spent in the field, I think this will help solve some of those problems because this helps open up more space and helps preserve the access that we have already. So um, this bill is showing a lot of progress today. Um, they The Senate voted uh, on a procedural vote that would basically clear the way for successful passage. So it's it's going to go and come to a final passage of the vote, uh, vote. So if you just reach out to your senators first and then follow that up with a call or an email to your representatives, and just let them know, say, hey, uh, I'm in support of the Great American Outdoors Act. And, you know, share why. Uh, tell them you, whatever reason that connects you to the outdoors, whether access, conservation, uh, funding for roads and trails and streams and all those things, great things that we do in the outdoors. So don't want to spend a lot of time uh, harping on you to do that, but uh, I think it's it's a vital piece of... Uh, of our life, uh, if you're enjoying the outdoors and, you know, if you're one who hunts and fishes for food, this is, this is your bread and butter, uh, pun intended, but, uh, to get out and, and do that. So with that said though, I have a question. So Corey and I were chatting a little further about some maple syrup production because I'm really intrigued about it and he's got some answers to to my questions and we were talking earlier about how much yield you get and uh, I think Corey's got some solid numbers for us if you can run us through that it would be pretty awesome and clear up some questions I had it, it's basically a 40 to 1 ratio so um, you need 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup so and that that would, man. That's one one reason why maple syrup is so expensive, is that it takes. <laughs> it make, it makes sense. It's and, um, how long did it take your friend to accumulate all the and well, I guess first, how many gallons did he accumulate over a season? Over a season, he, last year he got. He said he got seventy gallons of sap, um, and that was okay. over and, like. February, March, and I think into April. So, and he's going out probably checking buckets once a week and um, maybe more. Yeah, the, the, you have to process the sap like within the week because I believe like bacteria gets in, into it and it, um, it goes bad. So every week you had to take what he accumulated and boil it down to make to make the syrup, but he said, uh, "All in all, he got seven about seventy gallons of sir, uh, sap that translated into about a gallon and a half of syrup." 
Man, I think though, still a, a gallon and a half of syrup. I look at the price. So right. maybe and like that was out of one one of tree. S- oh, out of one tree! Wow, so that was out of one tree. He was yeah. doing three or four. Wow. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big old maple tree, so it, it probably produces a, you know, more than the average tree. But uh, yeah, that's one tree. And I think I buy when I go to the store and I buy maple syrup, I'll get like an eight ounce jar, and it's probably like twelve bucks. So if you translate, you know, what sixteen ounces to a pint, uh, I can't do the math off the top of my head, but you're looking at basically. Um, maybe a hundred dollars or so for a gallon, if you were to buy it at the grocery. Roughly, so, well, I I don't know. Depending on time and effort, that's one of those things. Like if you have the time to do it, it it's probably something. I think it's neat to do. I would try it if I had a maple tree or two. Yeah, and he's making me want to do it with my maple tree at the top of the driveway. Boom! It's just right there. It's right there. You got, uh, I saw the, the, what, the plugs are only like five or six bucks. The ones, the taps. Yeah, and the, you have to buy like food grade buckets and stuff to, uh, to collect. You know where, go to, uh, go to like a sandwich shop and ask them for pickle buckets. Not, Cause I they, would... once they use those buckets, they just throw them out. Hmm. I would have never thought of that. Yeah, and they they come with lids and stuff too. Um, I use talking about the to circle back around to the composting. So when we operated a, a composting service down here in Key West, we used uh, food grade buckets, and we actually got them. There's three Key Lime Pie shops uh, here in in Key West, and I basically called them up and I was like, "Hey, do you guys use food grade buckets?" They're like, "Yeah, we use it for our mixes, or we use it for our." Uh, what was another one? Um, sweetened condensed milk. And so once a week, they'd clean the buckets out for me. They'd have them in the stack. I'd pick them up in the alley, put them in the back of my truck. And I think in about a month, I accumulated about 100 buckets that we use for our service. So uh, you, you'd be surprised because the restaurants don't most of the time don't use them after. So if you're looking for food-grade bucket ever, that's the way to go. <laughs> nice. Uh, I think to close out, um, to talk about, so we talked a lot about planning. We talked a lot about planting. We talked a lot about looking at deficiencies, pH. Um, I think a couple of things that are good to point out is the use of fertilizer or the compost. So we were talking about that, about putting uh, minerals and everything back into the soil so there's definitely synthetic fertilizers and organic fertilizers i'm i'm going to recommend you use organic fertilizers and like i said compost first is a great way to renew your soil um as you continue your plants continue to grow they're going to need different minerals different quantities and at different stages in their life so that's something to pay attention to um like i said doing some research talking to the local agriculture extension office is going to pay a a great amount if you want to get serious about it you can always you know you can always do it without diving in full force but i tend to you know if if there's anything worth doing i tend to 
sort of jump in head first and try to learn everything I can about it, uh, which probably led to the commercial farm we were operating. But um, nonetheless, uh, if you're going to plant a good garden and you want to take it seriously, uh, it all starts in the planting stages. So you can break up your research over the year and, you know, times when it's winter, snowy outside or you're not planting stuff. Um learn about what you want to plant next year and, and do some solid research. Also look at fall and winter crops. Uh, Corey, I think we touched on it before. There are there crops that you see people growing in the winter time in Pennsylvania? Um, there's stuff that I've, I've planted in the spring, but I've left over winter, like my parsnips. Um, so I'm just starting to get into the, that type of stuff. So, um, I'm not sure what a lot of people, I think garlic is another one that overwinters. Yep. Um, trying to think of things off. A lot of the root vegetables, uh, oh, you can overwinter some of them as well. So like, like you said, parsnips, um, some, maybe some potatoes you can overwinter. I'm not certain. Uh, I think carrots, uh, carrots, you can carrots. And I, yeah, and makes- and what I've heard about parsnips is they get they get sweeter if you overwinter them. Ooh, that'd be good. So I just nice pick parsnips. Pick some uh, tonight that I think we're gonna try to have for dinner tomorrow. And they they definitely got do? got a lot bigger than they when we picked a few last year. They definitely got a lot bigger. What uh what would you do with your uh? What would you do with them? I think we're gonna pan fry them. Get them. Uh, okay. Slice, make slices. Just throw them in the pan with some oil, salt, and pepper. Get them Ooh, soft nice. and That's tender. Good. Enjoy the natural flavor of the vegetable. Yep. Keep it simple. So, uh, quick search here: cold hardy vegetables. Uh, this says to get a, a head start on spring. Um, broccoli. Uh, apparently is quite frost tolerant. Uh, also spinach, cabbage, shard, uh, kale. I know there's some different varieties of kale that are very, very cold tolerant as well. I don't know if you're a big kale fan, Corey. I we we've, I think we grew it one year and uh, that was it. <laughs> we, I recommend the dino kale, not the curly kale. I don't like the curly kale. We did uh, Swiss chard mm. last year, and it. Oh man! It. That's good stuff. It. We had it just kept coming and coming. You know, we'd pick the leaves off and eat it, and we got mm-hmm. sick of it. We had so much of it. <laughs> uh, we grew a lot of Swiss chard too. I think kale was a big one in the summer. We grew collard greens, because uh, they they really like the heat and the humidity, so they do well. And they'll get about the size of a plate. The leaves, oh wow, quite large. That getting um, them that big yeah, but, doesn't affect the flavor. So I know if you like get uh, zucchini or any of those type of vegetables, you get too big, they'll they they lose. You know, they don't taste as good. Nope, no, no, no. Um, it it doesn't really affect the flavor. We actually we would take them and use them to make like veggie wraps. So you take like a bunch of other like sliced carrots, maybe shredded cabbage. Um, and basically, you slice the, so lay the whole leaf flat on your countertop and take a small paring knife and you 
basically slice the stem flat with the rest of the leaf so that it's just like, you know, very, very thin. And then that allows you to fold it and you sort of use it like a, a burrito wrap. Nice. And then you can put whatever you want inside. Yeah. I've done the same with uh, Swiss chard leaves. I took it and I think this was a, excuse me, a recipe for a local magazine down here called, uh, I think it's Wellness, Keys Wellness or something like that. But they reached out to our farm, uh, wanted some fresh vegetable stuff and we did a took some local snapper and wrapped it with the Swiss chard leaves and and steamed it and it came out really really good. So, hmm. there's a yeah, definitely some stuff to do out there uh with lots of different types of vegetables. We try to incorporate more vegetables into our diet um pretty much every day. So, there's always something green or colorful on the plate. Uh, I think it's good to have a good balance and sort of taking control of what you're growing and eating uh, starts with a good garden. We uh, did a fresh Lake Erie walleye fish, fish fry tonight. But, uh, so, you know, you got the, the heavy fish, you know, breaded fish, so you need something light to go with it. So I picked some, mm-hmm. uh, some of the salad bowl lettuce in my garden, and we had some leftover corn on the cob. I cut that off the off the cob and chopped up some avocado and cherry tomatoes and onion and then used a vinaigrette dressing so it was just like lemon juice um, olive oil salt pepper and uh, apple cider vinegar and so it was nice and light to go with the fish it was good. That sounds like a nice balance to the meal. We had, um, let's see, tonight, uh, it was kind of like leftover night, so I had some of it, but we made uh, grilled mahi. So mahi's uh, good right now. Uh, fishermen here are catching a lot. So we got some from a friend. And so I had some grilled mahi with the uh, the tacticalories. Uh, was it a salt and pepper? Salt and pepper? A salt and pepper. Yep, yep, yep. So we had that one um, on the fish, and then we did some. You ever seen those uh, like the vegetable spiralers? So we have one of those, and we did uh, zucchini and yellow squash, and spiraled that up and sautéed it in some clarified butter, just with some salt and pepper, and grilled some corn on the cob with the uh, tacked calories veggie dust. Also, it's like one of our big favorites uh, out of all the the seasons I got from uh, from Casey. My wife and daughter like the veggie dust the most, I think. Nice. So, good stuff. Um, well, I think we're nearing the conclusion. I would say uh, one last recommendation. So after you harvest, uh, fresh is best, so don't over-harvest. Um, it's better to leave things on the plant than to cut them too early or to cut them and not use them at all. So just something to think about. And then an also important thing is look at, take a peek, do a little research and check out what vegetables should be stored cold and what vegetables should be stored, um, 
at room temp. There's also uh, vegetables like a lot of your leafy greens may stay fresher and more crisp if you keep them in water, either on your countertop or on your in your fridge. And then also there's uh, you can shock the plants. Lettuce is a big one. Uh, some of your other leafy greens, you can shock them in ice water uh, just before you serve them, and it will crisp them up. And so that's another great way to, to eat them. Just make sure you drain off all the water if you're going to do any pan frying or sautéing. Uh, that way you don't get the crackle and pop. But, Corey, do you have any last thoughts? No, I think I'm good. We covered a lot. Yeah, I think we did. I think we went through almost the whole cycle of the garden. I'm sure there's something we left out. Uh, I would say anybody, if you have any questions about gardening or growing or planting gardens or any of the above, uh, you can always reach out to us with questions. What's cooking at harvestingnature.com. Those emails get passed on to the whole crew here. So if you have a question specifically for one person, you can address it here and we'll, we'll all see it. Um, my last comments are, like I said, I encourage everybody to get in some sort of gardening, whether you're growing something on your window seal or, you know, you're doing square foot gardens in raised beds or you're doing hydroponic towers like the tower garden. Um, you know, those are all great resources. Uh, if you're uncomfortable, find a friend, go to a local nursery. A lot of them have classes, intro classes, Reach out to your local agriculture extension office. Um, you know, I think the world in which we're living, connecting with your food as much as possible is going to be the best outcome for everybody. So whether it's a fishing rod, a rifle, or, you know, a spade in the dirt, um, it, it's a good way to go around. Makes you feel great. Makes you eat great. And uh, I'll leave with that. So, um just like always, if you like what we're doing, go head over to your podcast uh, platform, leave us a review, hit that uh, number of stars that you think is appropriate, leave us a comment, tell us what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, and uh, head over to social media if you don't already follow us. Give us a quick follow there. And uh, don't forget about that uh, Great American Outdoors Act um, as you conclude this episode today. Anyway, thanks. Have a good night.